which is taking place in San Antonio, basically just under a month from now. Probably uh, f- the first among a number of sessions that's going to, going to stretch the unity of the church perhaps as never before. There will be the question, as you all know, about the um, proposal, the question that's been putting forward to the church, should the church in certain parts of the world be permitted to ordain uh, women to ministry? And, of course, that is creating quite a lot of tension in the church. We are not the first community of faith to ask that question. Uh, You know that many other denominations have asked that question already, not least the Church of Ireland and, and, of course, the Presbyterian Church. But Adventism is asking this question, and we've been asking this question for the last 50 years and haven't come to a consensus There is a clear divide in the church over which way we should go. So the question this morning as we study Acts is how do we react? How do we keep the good ship Adventism together? Can we have our differences and yet still be united? I think without being a prophet, and you don't have to be a prophet on this one, it is most unlikely that permission will be given for uh, women to be ordained in parts of the world where the church chooses to. The sheer weight of numbers of those in the developing world who have a a very strong, almost iron-fenced position on this, uh, that women should not be permitted, is is in such a huge majority compared to those in the western parts of the world who are in the main pro-women's ordination. Then you ask, where's the role of the Holy Spirit in this? How does he work? How does he work when, when Christians genuinely differ? The position of the church leadership is that uh, they are willing to allow certain parts of the church to accommodate this matter because uh, Scripture, they believe, we believe, that Scripture is unclear. It does not give an absolute yes or an absolute no. And of course I know there are many who would disagree with that position. Well, it did, there are thus saith the Lord's one way. And some people will say there are thus saith the Lord's the other. But the position of the church leadership is that it is not a moral issue. And so it is not, a, it is not written in tablets of stone. Like the moral law of the Ten Commandments are. That a woman may or may not be permitted to, 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 to be set apart for ordination. And that it is a matter that the Lord has left for the church together to decide. Now this morning it is not my purpose to discuss the merits of that or otherwise. But I I, I use that illustration of our time. How God's people come together and how how different people come to scripture from different perspectives. With different temperaments and different attitudes and different backgrounds. And how... The one thing, the one person who we have in common from all our different backgrounds is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, we have in this passage in Luke the picture of the first disciples, the first disciples of Christ. The first disciples of Christ have become radically different from the three years of walking around with Jesus, and now they're empowered with, the, with, with Jesus' life. And so what I aim to do this morning is trying to understand how the first 
followers of Christ enjoyed a deep sense of unity looking at the passage we read. How did this happen? Who made it happen? Is this a story that we can repeat or has been repeated? Could the story in Acts chapter 2 verses 42 to 47 be our story? How did the Holy Spirit and keep together a united church? What does the Holy Spirit do in the life of God's people? And then I want us to invite us to dream again. You see in your bulletin a dream for the church, a dream about the caring church. What does it mean to have a church or to belong to a church that truly cares about the other? And I invite you, as you keep your scripture in one hand, keep that, keep that paragraph about the dream of a church which is a caring church on, on the left-hand side in your other hand. And so are you ready for the journey with me this morning? As I consider Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, I need to take you first back to a part of their story, which is in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Remember that when we're looking at the study of Acts, it's Luke who's writing the historian, and Luke was very much involved in the story. He wasn't a detached historian. So Luke 1, verse 14 says that after Jesus left them and was taken into heaven, it says, all these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brother. So the, story, the, the, the picture we have is that as soon as uh, Jesus ascended to heaven, the disciples retreat. And the Bible tells us, tells us that they retreat for 40 days and 40 nights. And they're together, and they're trying to work out the story of what has happened to their experience with Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. I, I have gone to uh, the book by Ellen White called The Acts of the Apostles, and, and read that chapter for reference this week to try and understand what happened to those, those disciples. How did those disciples change from being a, a reckless rabble, if you like, to being solid, mature Christians whose primary focus was to, was to, serve, the role, to serve their Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what I found. These are the characteristics that I found that... that the disciples did. And remember that as they did it and became mature followers of Christ and, and, and godly men and women, they did the exact opposite of what their religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, had taught them and had failed to do. So the first thing I noted is that they, they humbled their hearts. God was the cocksure Peter who knew everything about everything. And it, during those 40 days of praying and fasting and, and being together in the upper room, the first feature of their, their, their change of experience was to have a humble heart, heart. Lord, we've been with you. We need you. You are our Lord, our Savior and our Master. And so we are now from now on going to be your utterly, depo- utterly devoted followers and we are going to depend on you. The second thing they did was they confessed their lack of faith. Lord, we didn't trust you as much as we should. Oh, how sorry we are that we didn't trust you. And of course, that led to an immediate repentance. We're sorry. If only we'd have trusted Jesus as he, as he, as, as he, as he taught us. If only we trusted his word. If only we'd taken him at his word. How different things could have been. As they were together, they remembered the spiritual truths Jesus had taught them. They sat together in fellowship and they remembered his parables. 
what, what, what did it mean, that story of the prodigal son? What did it mean about uh, when Jesus told the story, when Jesus shared the story of the rich young ruler? What, what happened to Zacchaeus and the woman at the well? And they remembered those stories. And as they remembered those stories, they began to see some spiritual truths and they began to see how Jesus treated some of those, some of those people who were in airing and who Jesus uh, set straight, so to speak, and taught them on their way. As they shared their faith together, they constantly focused on Jesus. It was all about Jesus and the beauty of his character. Now remember, when we talk about the person of Jesus, we're talking about someone whose character and personality is different, very, very different from anybody you or I have ever met or anybody they had ever met. Every one of us, every one of us has, a, has a, what I'll call our rough edges. There are moments when we flip, there are moments when we trip, there are moments when we, when we, just, when we become self-indulgent for whatever reason. You know the story. Don't try to have an argument or a discussion with someone when they're tired. Okay? Don't have an argument with somebody late at night. It doesn't work. Jesus was never like that. He never lost it. And the beauty of personality of his character was that he could talk with anybody. And, and after you talked with him, you, would, you, would, you began to feel that you were the most important person in the world. And you wanted to go on talking with him because, because he had more to tell you and he just enriched your soul as he talked with you. And so they, they, they're thinking about Jesus and, and the people he talked to. Even the people, even the, even the Jewish people, even the Pharisees amongst them. How did Jesus connect with them? Sure, he challenged them at times, but even then, he went out of his way to, never, to make sure he never embarrassed anybody individually. And then, uh, in the Acts of the Apostles, it's in the, in the chapter called Pentecost, they got a great sense of forgiveness. I can imagine Peter saying, hey guys, I shouldn't be sat in this circle with you. But do you remember, but, he, but Jesus told the messenger, uh, and, and uh, after he was resurrected, and tell Peter, he named me my, by name. Oh, the joy, the relief of being forgiven, of not having to carry that burden of guilt. Oh, how I messed up for the person of Jesus. Oh, how I let him down so many times. And of course, he doesn't keep going on about it as if I'm, he's burdened down with God. He's praising God that he is forgiven. I was forgiven by the Master. And yes, I'm standing tall, not because of my own ego, but because the Master forgave me and saved me. And then it says that as they gathered together in that room, they put away all differences. Now, what does that mean? You know your community and in mine. And I'm talking about our, our regional community, our national community here, and in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and in a number of denominations. This word called compromise is often seen as a dirty word. We don't like compromise. Let me take it away from Northern Ireland. Let me take it right to the heart of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You and I meet many a Seventh-day Adventist Christian from time to time who will say it's this way or no way on a whole host of issues. And of course as they say that as they say that they will hold up scripture, the Bible to you and say look, it says it here 
You can't compromise on that. It, I'm giving you a thus set rule. Therefore, it is this way or no way. And of course, when someone shares with you a clear statement from Scripture, on any matter, I'm not going to use any illustrations this morning, it is very difficult, unless you've got your wits about you, to say, well, actually, I see it from a different perspective. And, of course, in the world of no compromise, no other perspective is ever allowed. So take the... All right, no, I'm not going to get another bit. Stay true to what you said you're going to do. I don't go into any issues. But, but so, so when you're trying to share with someone, look, this is my understanding of Scripture. In one sense, you and I must be allowed permission to do that. Partly because of the way we've been brought up. I know that my take, and I'm not going into the issue, but I'm just saying it like this, my understanding, my take on the understanding of whether women should be ordained to ministry is, is influenced to a certain extent by my personal culture, my family culture, and my background. So just let me illustrate, okay? I have a tendency to be pro-women in ministry because my parents. My parents, when they first got married, belonged to the Salvation Army. And the Salvation Army have an egalitarian view of both men and women in ministry. And I'm just trying to tell you that as I study scripture, that's over there in the corner. I can't, I can't deny that. And part of me says, well, if it was good enough for them in the Salvation Army when they first got married, why should we in our community have faith in that now? Now, I'm not saying that's a right or wrong position. I'm trying to say to you, we are influenced when we come to scripture by our background and culture. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing or a good thing either. I'm just wanting us to recognize the reality of who we are. So, for example, let's go to the other extreme. If I have lived in sub-Saharan Africa, and I come to Scripture, and I see about the ordination of women, I'm going to, I'm going to have an iron fence view, because I've lived in sub-Saharan Africa, that no way, no way, does the Bible permit a woman to teach or preach or to be set apart? That is the sub-Saharan Africa view. I'm not, I'm not dissing it, I'm not denying it, I'm simply saying that is their perspective. Now how you bring those two views together is what the church is struggling over. So, so what I'm trying to say is, I got onto this point because they put away all their differences. When you put away all your differences, it does not mean that your views on a particular point in scripture will change. What it does mean, what it does mean, is that I have a humble and teachable spirit to listen to the view and understand the view and respect the view of the other. There is no place in church life when I share scripture with you to say my way or no way. That is not unity, that is the very opposite of unity. Even if, even if, the truth is uh, a foundational, if you put it like that. You see, if you have a truth, I, I meet with many, many uh, believers who have what I would describe as private interpretations. You and I uh, come to Scripture and, and we see a, th a perspective on Scripture that we believe the church should buy into. 
strictly on the nature of salvation, the nature of Jesus. Simply, they, they will peddle it and peddle it and peddle it, and essentially the church has listened, and the church has said we've examined it in councils together, and but we say respectfully, thank you, thank you for sharing it with us, but it is indeed a private interpretation. It never has become part of our fundamental beliefs. And unless it becomes part of our fundamental beliefs, we must ask you respectfully to keep it as a private interpretation and not peddle it amongst the members. Now, there is no, there's no immediate local relevant issue that I'm thinking of here. But globally, that sometimes happens. So can I, can I, can you and I simply say in the community of faith, whatever I might believe, whatever differences I have, and of course the differences we have aren't only over teaching and doctrine, they can be about preference. Lord have mercy if we were to have uh, some serious issues about music. Okay, here's the other sort of, uh, in in Western society at least, in Western Adventism at least, we have these uh, conversations about uh, music and worship preferences. Should should worship be uh, formal or informal? Should it be more head or heart? Should there be more musical teaching? And these are the discussions that constantly, constantly take place. And of course, what happens is, often in practice, unfortunately, is that there is no compromise, right? If I can use the generational example, right? So where, so where people in my generation want a more formal worship, and we say, that's it, it's formal worship, or no worship, People of another generation say, well, thank you very much. We appreciate your comments. We're right up here. We're going to have our separate worship in, in another place. And that often happens in churches, in large churches. Now, I actually thank God, in one sense, that in churches of our size, in, in, in the Irish tradition, we have the luxury of that privilege. Because essentially what we're saying is if we send the youth out the back, we have our worship in here, and at my, our age, we're actually, we're actually saying, my way or no way. I'm using that as an illustration because that's not an issue here. And I praise God for that. But you see, the disciples in that upper room, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, didn't say my way or no way. And you remember, remember the guys who are in there, who are sat up, you remember the egos of the guys in that, sat in that group. The Peters, the Jameses, the Johns, the Lukes, uh, and the Matthews. There are some egos that only the Holy Spirit could tame. Where it wasn't my way or no way, it was we're in this together. And it's the Holy Spirit that helped them to do that. So they put away all their differences. The power struggles were over, and they, because, I would say, they felt their spiritual need. You know, when you feel your spiritual need of Christ, it cannot help create a sense of humility in you. I'm only as good as I am. I'm only as uh, powerful as I am. I'm only as clever as I am, if you want, because of Jesus in all aspects of our lives. But for the grace of God, I'm nobody. And so it gives you a good dose of humility and also makes you teachable. Because if you recognize that whatever you do, whatever you know, whatever, you, whatever skill or job or talent you have, uh, or, or where you are because of, where, uh, because of the talents you have, it's only because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that keeps you going. And it automatically makes you teachable. It's because of him, not because of me. 
or at the very least, it's because I've been willing to be in partnership with him that I can do what I do. And so we recognize that their spiritual need. Now, when they said their prayers, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, these disciples in that other room learned something very special. I don't know how your prayer life sometimes goes or my prayer life sometimes goes, but you know it can sometimes go like this. Dear Lord, bless us this day. Care for our needs. Care for our foods. Look after us. Keep us safe while we travel. If I and I understand that, that, that it's right to pray for those needs, no question at all. But, in the, but as a result of that upper room experience, those gents, those disciples, recognized that their prayer life was dramatically changed. And they started praying like this. Dear Lord, there is John, there is Mary, there is Jean, there is Jack. There is Bill, there is Donald, there is Susan, who does not know the truth about the true and living God. Dear Lord, we are unsettled. We are disturbed. We are disturbed and unsettled until they are in your kingdom. Help us this day, through the power of your Holy Spirit, to connect with them and reach them. Dear Lord, help us connect with them and help them. And we claim your promise, and we claim your promised Holy Spirit power to do this. And so in that way, they became very dependent on the Spirit. Instead of having words of regret, if only, and looking to the past, if only we'd done this, if only we'd done that, they had words of confession which said, I am sorry for what we've done to you, Lord. They also had words of confession as they looked back on their recent experiences. Dear God, you are so good. I'm taking a quote from that chapter. According to his promise, he had sent the Holy Spirit to his, from heaven to his followers as a token that he had as priest and king received all authority in heaven and on earth and was the anointed one of all people. And as we looked at that last time, uh, Jesus our high priest, when we looked at Acts and Luke last time. So they begin to see Jesus as their elder brother. And under the, the, the timing of Christ, the disciples had begin, begin to feel their need of the Spirit. They were apprentices. apprentices. They'd been apprentices under Christ, and he'd led them uh, to feel their need for the Spirit, wandering around Palestine. Now, under the Spirit's teaching, they had received their final qualification. It was as if they were getting their graduation. And their graduation, if you like, their final graduation class, their viva or viva or whatever you call it, was those 40 days with God in the upper room. And they were getting their final qualification to go out. And so as we think about the Spirit, as we think about the Acts 2, 47 to 40, 52, 42 to 47 story, where the people were one accord and they devoted themselves to fellowship, we need to examine how this Holy Spirit worked and still works today. Some of you, seven of you, have got texts about what the Holy Spirit does. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit's presence in the church and in our personal lives does the following. Text number one, please. 
and just say which text you're reading. Text number one, uh, about the Holy Spirit's presence in the church and in our personal lives and what it does. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Thank you. He tests the Spirit himself, testifies with our spirit. concern for one another. That's the third thing the Spirit does. Number four. Galatians 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay. The Spirit invites us to be selfless instead of selfish. Number five. characteristics that are there for the benefit of others. Number six. John 14, verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. The Holy Spirit is a teacher and will help us remember our experiences in Christ. Number seven. things the Spirit does. The Spirit, from what I read there, helps us think. Okay? It helps, it determines how we think. I'm reminded of the, t- of the text in uh, Ephesians which says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit not just invites us to take on the mind of Christ, the Holy Spirit is our, um, the Holy Spirit is presence present with us in our mind to, to take on the mind of Christ, to, to, to think like Christ. Remember, Jesus left for heaven and left the Holy Spirit with us to live in our lives. So, so this is where the, the, the metaphor of the Holy Spirit walking with us and talking with us is not, just, not totally accurate. He's not there outside of us. He's actually there within us. Now, don't get wrong, I'm not suggesting we become the robots or automatons, but we're invited to, to so sink our lives with Christ that he lives in us. You know that when you uh, put your iPod or your iPhone to iTunes, you sink it almost on a daily basis so that you can get the latest podcast of whatever music you want. That's what you and I are invited to do, to sink our lives 
so that you and I become one with Christ. So that as Paul said in Galatians, it is not I who lives, but it is Christ who lives in and through me. The only way that can happen is for a supernatural activity, a supernatural action to take place in your life and my life. You can't do it humanly unless you say, good morning, Holy Spirit. Good morning, God. Good morning, Jesus, the Son. Come into my life today. Partner with me in my life and make me whole. And let us go through this day on a journey together. So the Spirit is an enabling force that equips God's people to function as believers. And so the function has a practical purpose. It has to do with how we think, the choices we make, and the way we act. And so as I think about that, and as I think about about, uh, uh, this passage of Scripture that we're looking at, I come next to how it applies finally, if you like, as a conclusion, to how this works in our church. You see, I've got this dream on this piece of paper, which John Stock came up with uh, 35 years ago. I love this dream because it says to me, this is how the church should be. And how I believe all of us should work with the Holy Spirit to make it a reality. A dream of a church which is a caring church. I've said to you before from this pulpit, years ago, the Seventh-day Adventist church in certain places of the world used to say, Seventh-day Adventist people who care. Now, if you really care, you don't need a slogan or an advertising promotion line or a soundbite to say Seventh-day Adventists people who care. And dream of a church which is a caring church, whose congregation is drawn from many races, nations, ages, and social backgrounds, and exhibits the unity and diversity of the family of God. We are different people coming, whether, whether it's the general conference where many all nations from around the world meet together, all equal under God, but different, or whether it's here in the local church, and, and there are quite a few nations here in this church represented. And we have different roles and functions in life. And we have come from different backgrounds and experiences. And the only thing we have in common is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the dream is that as a result, we express the diversity of the family of God, whose fellowship is warm and welcoming. And that goes beyond, that goes beyond coming up to a coming up to a brother or a sister on a Sabbath morning and simply saying, Good morning, how are you? Welcome today. It's deeper than that. We sang this song, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. What does that mean? How deep do we go for the other? When the other is in trouble, are we ready to lift him up or her up? Or are we ready to say, oh, have you heard about so-and-so? They're in trouble. You know, I've heard about three or four people who are in difficulty this week, uh, not here in Northern Ireland. And I'm, I'm you know, and you could easily say, well, you know, he or she ain't, ain't up to it. Look, do a, do, 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 do a spiritual check on me and, and say, actually, pray for that brother. Pray for that sister and help them to grow. That's the, that's the spiritual check I have to do in my own life from time to time. 
know that, the, that we can get through. One week, absolutely self-confident that everything's wonderful. The next week, we could be in the same place, same pit that my brother or sister is in. Whose fellowship is warm and welcoming and never marred, marred by anger. Well, the anger bit is my way or no way. All right, if there's a serious injustice, there is time to be angry about certain issues. But we, but we love, we don't have selfishness, there is not jealousy or pride. It is simply say, I am here to serve. And whichever way God can use me in this community of faith, I will be used. In Sweden, reminds people like me, in the context of the wider church, there is a time when your leadership role will end. There are some people, just before the general conference now, whose leadership time will end and some won't be related. We are given a certain time to serve. And if the Lord chooses that certain elder Wilson should be re-elected, praise the Lord. If he chooses that it's time for another leader to arise and take over, praise the Lord. And we accept the will of the Holy Spirit. Also, I, again, I think if I repeat myself, forgive me because I think repetition is another way of learning to make the point drive home you know, we may not always like or find a leader who is our personal preference your pastor or my pastor may not be to your personal preference but that's what the Holy Spirit says okay, I understand we accept that whoever is put in place is put in place because the Spirit has led him there or her there and so the fellowship is warm. We forbear one another. What does forbear mean? What an old English word, eh? We're patient. We're patient with one another. Because God isn't finished with us yet. You know my strengths and weaknesses. You know my, how grumpy and cantankerous I can get from time to time when I don't get my own way. Lord, keep working on me. And I trust he will keep working on you. And that's how we become patient with each other. Because none of us have reached this great Mr. and Mrs. Perfect Christian yet. We haven't. None of us. But what I will say is as we forbear with each other, each of us will be teachable. And we will be willing to say, Lord, I am willing to learn. And yes, I am willing to learn from my fellow brother or sister. And so when I meet sometimes, or have met in the past, people who have said, oh, I wish our church could be full of professional musicians. And we could have really good music. Oh, wouldn't, it, wouldn't we just enjoy the splendor of heaven? Well, I'm reminded of the little old lady who used to play the harmonium. Is there anybody old enough to remember what a harmonium, harmonium is? Did you ever have one in Banbridge years ago? Or ported down, right? A harmonium is one of those American um, uh, mock pipe organs, if you like. And to make it work, you used to have to pump it with your feet. When I was a kid, I used to watch the little organs pump. Yeah, playing nothing like a rolling piano. And unless you pumped hard with your feet, the organ wouldn't work. And uh, it was C.S. Lewis who used to love listening to classical Anglican choral music. And he said, whenever I think how wonderful and how great this classical Anglican organ music is, let me never look down on the little old lady playing the harmonium in the little, in the little church. Worthy to tie up her boot laces in terms of my dedication 
so, 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 so we love one another, we are teachable, we are never full of anger, selfishness, jealousy, or pride. We love one another with a pure heart, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. We do not remember what happened yesterday, or last year, or two years. We, 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 well, the disciples just take Peter's experience. I messed up, I'm forgiven. Now, do you think for one moment that Peter, uh, that Paul and the other disciples kept on going on at Peter? Remember, remember that night, Peter? No. By the way, we have to admit that Acts tells us that when Saul became Paul, the disciples were highly suspicious of the time. Luke doesn't cover that up because they were frightened that Paul was an infiltrator into the group and he was going to wreck the plan, if you like. And so there was, yeah, Luke records the humanity of what happened there. But, but they've forgiven one another. And so as we bear one another's burdens, which we offer friendship to the lonely, we, as we are invited to support the weak, and accept those who are despised and rejected by society. And you know that society right now is turning in on itself. We are not particularly comfortable with the other right now. Society turns it on itself. It's all about us and our interests. Well, that's when the church shines. That's when the church shines and says, actually, the other is for whom Jesus died. And we just can't let the other go. And so our love spills over into the world outside. It is attractive. It is infectious. It is irresistible. It is actually the love of God and so, today, we have to ask ourselves the question, is that, is that representative of our church community? Globally, nationally, and yes, even locally. Dare we dream? Dare we dream? But we only have permission to because we have the power to make it a reality. The power to make it a reality is because it once happened in Acts chapter 2, 42 to 48. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is the person who is able to make it happen. There isn't another organization on earth that has the potential to display the character of Christ as the church does. I remember there is a little statement that Ellen White says about the church. And don't go away from here disillusioned. Don't go away from here disillusioned today. Because we haven't got it right all the time. It's still a work in progress. And Ellen White says this, and you know this very well. She says, enfeebled and defective as it is. That's me. That's you. Enfeebled and defective as we sometimes can be or appear, the church is the one object on which God gives, in a special sense, his supreme regard. It is the theater. Welcome to the theater. It is the theater of his grace in which he delights to reveal his power 